Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of the TripCast. I'm Nick Garcia, the Tribune's regional editor, and this week we have a very special episode of your favorite Texas political podcast, because we are taping live in Lubbock at uh, Texas Tech. We have a uh, live audience right in front of us, and uh, we're here hosting a two-day event focused on the future of rural Texas. We're talking about education, healthcare, natural resources, and a lot more. To kick off the Rural Symposium, we thought we'd get some of the sharpest reporters covering these issues to come and talk about rural Texas. Unfortunately, none of them were available. <laughs> so you've got us. <laughs> Kidding. We have a great group joining us here. Uh, with us is Adam Young, the editor of the Lubbock Avalanche Journal. He has been reporting and editing here for 13 years. We have Sarah South Walbrook, news director of Texas Tech Public Media, a lifelong Lubbock resident, who I hear her mom is an amazing cook, and she's gonna be around sometime this week, so we're gonna try to meet her. And from the Texas Tribune, we have uh, Pooja Salhorta, who covers East Texas. She is originally from Houston and now lives in Lufkin. And Jamie Lozano, who covers the South Plains and the Panhandle, is here in Lubbock. And she is a native of Levelland, which is right next door. So this is where we play the game of one of these things doesn't belong here because I am a Colorado native. <laughs> um, but I do love me some Texas. So to get things started, I just wanted to get this conversation going with uh, data. So according to Texas 2036, a nonpartisan nonprofit who's also sponsoring this event, thank you very much, uh, the rural population uh, of Texas is 3 million people. It is larger than 18 states. Rural Texas, along with the food, fiber, and other manufacturing goods it exports, generated more than $21.2 billion for the state's economy in 2019, according to the Texas Almanac. Cattle, cotton, and are, are the state's leading exports, along with oil, gas, tourism, the public sector, the rural economy is a sizable chunk of the Texas, Texas economy. So I'd like to hear, knowing that, that, that rural Texas is integral to the, the state of Texas, I'd love to hear from each of you what you think was one of the more defining stories for rural Texas, for you, for your news organizations this year. And Adam, I, I wanna start with you. Your paper reported in early August that the region uh, would lose about $1 billion due to the drought's impact on cotton. And that number has only gone up since then. What's going on? Yeah, well, thanks for having me here, Nick. And I guess just a shout out, a lot of our reporting has come from our uh, agriculture and regional reporter, Brandy Addison, who's been following this. Um, a lot from uh, Jamie Lozano, who's on your team and who's here on this panel today. Um, unfortunately, one of the biggest headlines we've seen this year is this uh, billion to upwards of $2 billion um, economic impact and loss from you know to the whole regional economy uh, because of this really poor cotton crop. Uh, a lot of that's fueled by the drought and just uh, untimely rains uh, and a lack of rain uh, earlier in the year in a La Nina cycle right now for folks who uh, are in this region. That's uh, uh, if you like it dry, that's good. But if you if you like to grow things, it's not. Uh, uh, we've, uh, I think a main source that Brandy talked with on that, and I know uh, Jamie talked with as well, is Darren Hudson here at Texas Tech. Um, he'd uh, had that estimate of up, you know, upwards of $2 billion, you know, perhaps worst case scenario. A lot of that's driven by the, uh, uh, looks like the forecast for the cotton crop earlier in the year was probably about half of what it normally was, uh, or at least from last year, which was about 4.5 million acres. So just uh, lower numbers and that the, the trickle down on that uh, impacts uh, uh, businesses far and wide in our community. Um, it, that, it's the kind of money that uh, you can't offset with a big Texas Tech versus UT game or, uh, or anything like that that really fuels our economy here. I mean explain to those of to those listening and those in the audience who might not know, I mean, what does cotton really mean to Lubbock? I mean, you know, I was in Dallas recently and I, I was explaining to some of my friends that the, the shirts they're wearing come from Lubbock. The, the cotton comes from Lubbock. But, but, but that's, you know, outside of Lubbock. What does it mean 
to this community. I mean, just even for the paper, I mean, you know, advertising is impacted, you know, the restaurants, uh, you can think about just any business, uh, that, uh, been, uh, farmers and you know, growers and uh, I guess stakeholders are uh, um, having a good year, they're able to uh, pass that down and, uh, and, and within years like this they have to perhaps have to seek um, alternative uh, methods or uh, you know, government assistance, whatnot, it's just wide ranging. Jamie, you and I were out at a, at a cotton uh, farm this morning, and you know the the folks showing us around, they they pointed like this set of cotton grew, this didn't. Uh, we're gonna claim insurance here. We're we're hoping for one more rain here. You know, what are you hearing from you know your farmers and and sources when it comes to the impact on the drought this year, and and looking forward. Well, really what I'm hearing is just that their, you know, their lives that they, their lives and their careers that they have turned into a regular basis for them it has kind of turned into much more of a touch and go type of thing. They don't know what to expect from this year's crop. They don't know what the weather is going to be like or if it's going to rain when they need it to. And um, not having that, that predictable cycle, it, it not only throws them off, but like Adam was saying, it throws off our whole economy out here. Um, and so kind of looking forward, I mean, a lot of it is just wishful thinking, hoping for a wetter winter, hoping to get some, some of that soil moisture before the next planting season comes around. Um, but really it's just, just that, just wishful thinking. And thinking about the ripple effects, you have discovered a really interesting uh, unintended consequence while you know, or a, a, a terrible side effect of the drought, which is food scarcity. And you reported earlier this year that one of the uh, reasons why food pantries across Texas, specifically here in, in the High Plains region, doesn't, they don't have enough food to give out is because the region isn't producing <laughs> enough and there are federal regulations. Talk to us a little bit more about that and, and what that means. Yeah, so um, you know, while I was working on that story and talking with um, a lot of the food pantry directors, they were explaining that their federal regulations require them to buy local produce, locally grown produce specifically, to supply their pantries. And you know, out here, like you're saying, we went to a cotton farm this morning, we do have corn, but trying to find that fresh produce is just not an, an attainable goal for every region in Texas. Um, so those regulations, really do cause a hiccup whenever they're trying to work around that. And you know, like you were saying, whenever we have years like this where it's the drought, but they're also dealing with record-breaking inflation, it's a lot of issues that just pile on to each other and um, has created just more problems and more food scarcity in the region. Uh, we will be taking audience questions later in uh, the hour, so start thinking. Uh, about what you might like to uh, ask this august panel. Um, you know, Adam, going back to you, I'm really curious about what are you hearing or what are your reporters hearing from agriculture leaders, agriculture uh, farmers and ranchers about what sort of assistance they might need uh, going forward? You know, we're having a legislative session starting very soon. Is there anything that state lawmakers should be thinking about? And Jamie, feel free to jump in, or, or Sarah or Pooja. Um, you know, what, what do you think the state lawmakers could be doing to help as we are in this un period of uncertainty? I mean, generally what I hear is they just need support from their um, you know, federal lawmakers that they know on the, from the state um, to support uh, cotton crops. I know back in, I think it was the most recent farm bill, they were able to get elements of cotton uh, reintroduced back into it. And I know that was a um, big help having uh, Congressman Arrington um, on the Agriculture Committee has uh, been helpful for this region from what I've seen. Um, uh, things like that have been helpful. Um, it's also sparked some innovation um, here at Tech and uh, just in, in the private sector, looking at what the long-term uh, water and drought future is for the area. There have been more businesses uh, springing up that we've reported on, uh, pushing uh, uh, more sustainable growing, um, indoor growing, uh, I think, what's the word, hydroponics, things like that. There's a new facility in Slayton. So it's uh, 
inspiring innovation, which is usually what this area has been uh, known for, you know, trying to make the best out of a bad situation. Sarah, you're nodding your head up and up and down. <laughs> For those of you who are audio only. Exactly, that's what we do in radio. Um, I was going to say the same thing. You know, I think one of the most helpful things that the legislature can look into this upcoming session is water planning um, and figuring out what some long-term options are. Um, I think that's one of the most impactful things that they could look at when we go back to the session in January. You know, speaking of water, one of the things that blew my mind that you told us over lunch yesterday was, and I did not know this, and shame on me, but Lubbock is estimated to, to get to, I think, 500,000 people by uh, 2040, which is right around the corner. And I'm wondering, you know, we often think of rural communities shrinking, but that's not true across the board. Lubbock is growing. It is uh, a magnet. Uh, talk to us a little bit about how you see that growth sort of, of, of playing out and, and the role agriculture and tech might play in that. Yeah, so as some of our biggest economic drivers, agriculture and Texas Tech University are bringing in a lot of that growth and a lot of those people to be new Lubbockites. Um, I will say I think that projection is maybe a bit optimistic, but Lubbock is a rapidly growing city. And I think that is in some ways at the detriment to some of our smaller area or smaller towns in the area. You know, those are towns that population wise are aging and younger people are not choosing to stay. They're coming to the Lubbocks to look for job opportunities or school opportunities. And so I think those are some of the bigger picture population trends to keep an eye on. Um, one thing that Lubbock has historically done well is prepare infrastructure. Um, we've always kind of been ahead of that. And I think we're kind of at a point that we're maybe seeing our population grow at a rate that we're not as far ahead. And that's a new challenge for our city. I, I, I preface the question with the fact that many of Texas's rural counties are shrinking, losing population. Uh, Pooja, I was, I was gonna save this for last, but I think this is actually a, a really good time to, to get into this. One of these uh, side effects of a shrinking population is the lack of healthcare. Healthcare is leaving these smaller, uh, less populated counties. And you've done some reporting on this about how are, how are some of the, the innovative ways that we're getting healthcare to those communities that don't have doctors, that don't have ERs, that don't have EMSs. I mean, these are, these are our neighbors that don't have access to these uh, basic goods. So what have you found? Yeah, you know, um, rural healthcare is a huge issue. Texas has the highest uninsured rate of the country, um, and specifically in rural areas, there's uh, a number of people who are uninsured, there's fewer hospitals, uh, there's also been a number of hospital closures, I think the number is like 24 hospitals since 2005 have closed down. Um, but there are some providers trying to address this healthcare gap. Um, I covered a mobile health clinic um, that is, it's actually, they're based in Beaumont, so in Southeast Texas, but they operate a mobile bus unit that different days of the week goes into different rural communities. So, you know, I went and visited them when they were in Kirbyville, which is a small town, about 2,000 people in um, Jasper County. It's 600 miles away from here. I did, I did the Google map last <laughs> night, it's 600 miles. 600 miles, there you go. Um, and yeah, so they set up shop in a community center. They have their bus, they have um, a nurse practitioner from the community, and it's a lot of just basic preventative healthcare that they're providing. Um, so they can't do very complex things like surgeries or um, very specialized care, but for a lot of folks out there who have chronic diseases like high blood pressure or diabetes, they can get those basic checks that they need, um, and they take uh, they see people on like a sliding scale. So if you don't have insurance, you're not forking over, you know, hundreds of dollars for testing or something like that. So that's one solution. Um, I think, you know, I'm hearing different, different people in East Texas trying out different things, creating partnerships, um, and just, of course, pushing for Medicaid expansion as well. 
Now, on the front page of the Avalanche Journal this morning was a story about uh, rural health care and uh, some of what has happened since COVID. You want to talk a little bit about that, Adam? Yeah, it's kind of a blur, uh, the, the story. The, Mateo did a nice job with that story, but I mean, my, my takeaways and the takeaways I hope most people get or the, uh, the uh, I think the headline we had on it was the uh, hardships that the area faced from COVID-19, but it also kind of sparked some innovations. Um, it's kind of uh, learned from some of these lessons, uh, but, but they're still struggling, obviously. Uh, it really hit a lot of our uh, small rural hospitals. I think we he had a point that we haven't had one close in the state since 2020, and not that that's been that long, but we've had you know, quite a few um, shrink through attrition. Like uh, Sarah had mentioned, we've got uh, more and more people coming to, to Lubbock for their health care rather than uh, some of the small uh, rural hospitals that just aren't able to provide what they used to. And Jamie, you spent a lot of time before you came to the Tribune reporting on this. I'm wondering, what do you, what are you hearing, and and what do you think uh, might be next for rural health care? Really, what I'm hearing, you know, like Adam said, a hospital, a rural hospital, hasn't closed since 2020. And um, what I have heard is that the reason for that is because of COVID-19 relief funds. And so, of course, we know that those funds are going away quickly. Um, and whenever that safety net is gone, there is a lot of concern about what the next year could hold for rural hospitals. Um, with that being said, you know, the, innovate, the innovation that is coming out is going to be, if, if, if we can get the funding for it, I should say, could really be a game changer, um, especially with telehealth. That is the one that I see kind of being the the next frontier, um, especially as we deal with broadband expansion. Um, and I think that once telehealth is available, and we also deal with you know the issue of media literacy in um, or digital literacy in rural areas, I think that once we can get the ball rolling there, that could have a big impact. Let's take a break to thank our sponsors. Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center. Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center is a comprehensive health care center dedicated to providing services and resources to address shortages in our rural communities. Visit ttuhsc.edu to learn more. Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas. Methodist Healthcare Ministries is committed to health equality. Equity, I'm sorry, striving to create more fair and just opportunities for all to thrive. Learn more at mhm.org. Water grows. There is a tremendous gap in understanding where and how food is produced in today's consumers. Water grows aims to connect influencers and decision makers with the farmers that grow their food and help rural economies thrive. Watergrows.org. And Texas 2036. Texas 2036 is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization building long term data driven strategies to help secure our state's prosperity through our bicentennial and beyond. They're at Texas2036.org. So, Sarah, there was an election not that very long ago. You don't say. <laughs> uh, Democrats, have you heard of them? Uh, some. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was there there has been this idea in the zeitgeist that uh, uh, Democrats just need to work harder in rural Texas to win. You did a fascinating story earlier this year uh, about local Democrats, the bench essentially. Mm -hmm. What happened there? So yeah, this was a story that I followed through our midterm elections last week. You know, rural voters got a lot of attention um, this political cycle. Everybody thought that, you know, this was the year that Democrats were actually going to crack that nut and boy did that not happen and I think there's a lot to that I think ultimately it's just going to be a tougher nut to crack than some people who are not in this area realize um, so one again the story that I've been following were the efforts of the Lubbock County Democratic Party to get candidates to sign up. This was uh, back in January when I started to do this. Um, and I noticed that there were a lot of uncontested races on ballots or races that only attracted Republican candidates. And so I went to our local Democratic Party to ask, 
what's up with that? And some of it is just, you know, the need to better organize, um, get some different energy. And our local party is doing that very well, I think, right now. Um, I want to also give a shout out to the 134 pack, which is working to organize rural Democrats outside of Lubbock County. Um, one part of their work is truly just, you know, trying to get a party chair in each county. Um, you know, make sure there is some kind of official organizing effort there. But yeah, so in our primaries, we only had um, two local Democrats. Um, there was a position for Justice of the Peace who she had served for many, many years. She lost last week. Um, and then there was also a Democratic um, county commissioner who was running. He also lost. Those were the only two candidates. Again, there were just so many seats that were either uncontested or only had Republican candidates. We saw a lot of those races decided back in May um, during those primary election seasons. And so, um, again, I think this goes back to there just there's good energy there right now, but it's just going to be a longer process to actually, I think, make those waves in the rural counties that need, that we thought could have happened this cycle, it's going to take longer to happen. Adam, you look very eager to say something or. <laughs> oh no, I mean, I'll just say that I think it's just important to note that, I mean, I think the top of the ticket or even though President Biden wasn't on the top of the ticket, I think you know this coming during a, a midterm with certainly in Texas an unpopular president certainly made it even more of an uphill battle. Despite um, you know uh, former Congressman O'Rourke uh, visiting or campaigning heavily in the South Plains, um, he still wasn't able to really chip away or um, whittle that or that ratio down. So I think a lot of it was still voting on national politics. I'll agree with that. I went out to Snyder um, and did just kind of man on the street interviews trying to talk to voters. And I specifically picked that town because both Beto O'Rourke and Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick had visited. Um, I asked everyone that I talked to, you know, did you know about these events? What did you hear? Um, you know, what are some of the issues you're thinking about? Um, and it did go to national politics pretty quick. And so even though that wasn't on this ballot, um, I think that's still top of mind for people. Um, and you know, those visits and I think the effort to connect with these communities was worthwhile. Um, it's just gonna take more than that. It's gonna take more than a one-time visit to Muleshoe to actually make any progress in those communities. Do you think that there are communities here that actually want Democrats here, or I mean, should Democrats even bother? We've got neighborhoods, we've got some precincts. I, I bet we'll see another competitive race in, in Northeast Lubbock County in, in uh, 2024 or 2026. Um, I mean, that's, that's historically been driven there, but when you've had the um, entrenchment of uh, one party that's been able to uh, draw maps uh, a certain way and tweak things uh, to their advantage as long as they have it, makes things, it, it, it kind of, uh, I guess perpetuates um, the, I guess the voting patterns or uh, helps keep them in power. One thing that I've heard from my sources is that there's just a big disconnect between the statewide Democratic Party and the people on the ground actually trying to do this work. And so I think one thing that I've heard is that there's going to be a bigger push at the, with, towards the statewide Democratic Party to, hey, listen to us out here. Um, here's what we actually want instead of just going with they, what they think needs to happen. They need to be listening to the people out here. And I'm um, sorry, I will add though, you know, last week I was here on the ground speaking with voters on election day and I spoke to so many people that were very much for democratic ideas, democratic beliefs, um, and they just felt like they weren't in the environment to just outwardly say that. Mm -hmm. And so I do think there is that support here in Lubbock. I just think it might be just outnumbered at this point in time. I do wanna build off of that. One reason when that initial story that I reported out in January, one reason that I heard that they were having a hard try time recruiting Democratic candidates, local Democrats to be on the ballot, I mean, they see it as a losing fight. Why are you going to put all this time and money when 
you are likely not going to win. Um, and that mindset, I, I understand, but also it's not going to change if you don't have names on the ballot. Um, so yes, I think that's very much a thing, is that um, just kind of the perception, but we need to see people getting out there um, and trying to do it. I know the Texas Tribune has done a lot of reporting around uh, uh, the question of, you know, with one party dominance in Texas for, for 20 plus years, do Democrats even have a chance? Those articles are at texastribune.org. Uh, Pooja, I know you've talked to voters uh, during early voting and on election day. What did you hear in East Texas? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a similar pattern playing out in East Texas. You know, there were in the district, the congressional district that I live in, in Lufkin, which has been redistricted, you know, there was a Democrat on the ballot, but she, Mary Jo Woods, you know, no one knew who she was. She hadn't made um, any appearances in any of the counties. I talked to Democratic chairs who said she kind of like disappeared and, and they were hopeful, you know, they were out there knocking on doors for her, even though they had never met her in person. And I think, you know, they are struggling to get competitive names on the ballot. Um, talking to folks just, you know, on the street outside of Walmart or Target, um, as they're coming out, asking folks, who are you voting for and why and what do you care about? One thing that stood out to me was um, a generational gap. There were several, like, you know, mothers and daughters or parents and their child, and the, the child would say they're voting for Beto, and the parent would say they're voting for Abbott. Um, and there was, like, a clear um, dichotomy there. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, the turnout in rural Texas is usually higher. Um, and I did see that, like, there was a range of people out there at the polls. Like, people say, you know, younger people don't vote. Well, um, in Nacogdoches, for example, where SFA is, um, and Beto did come out there as part of his, like, college tour, um, I did see a lot of excitement from younger people, but I guess, you know, not enough to, f to flip the seat. We'll start taking audience questions in about three minutes, so if you want to line up, I think we have uh, mics over here and uh, over yonder. Um, so we published an article that the headline was uh, something to the effect of, you know, rural Texas is the backbone of the state, it's in danger. And we got some emails, we got some Twitter comments. I recognize like Twitter is not representative, um, like full caveat, Twitter is not representative. But there was this theme we heard uh, from our readers that rural Texas is just voting against their interests. Um, the reason why they don't have healthcare, the reason why they don't have broadband, the reason why the, the schools are getting smaller and closing, the reason why people are leaving, the lack of services, you know, uh, the people in Austin that they send there to represent them are not doing them any favors. I, I would really love to hear from, from the Lubbock folk, uh, what do you make of those comments? I don't mind taking that on first. I think this is true across the country and across party lines. I think there's a disconnect between constituents and the lawmakers that they elect to represent them. And I think what we see here in Texas frequently is just lawmakers going after maybe some social issues that is not something that their constituents maybe care about as much. I wanna give the example of book banning. That is really not taken off in our part of the state like it has in some of the suburbs, for example. And still, I know that's going to be a focus of the legislative session is um, K through 12 curriculum and things like that. So I think it's just that general disconnect, which again, we see everywhere. I don't have any solutions to that other than, you know, hosting town halls and doing what you can to connect with the people that you represent. But I think that's the root of the problem. I would just say, I think part of it is it's kind of, it's, it's not really something, it's, it's not tangible, some of these things. People don't really know what uh, uh, 
a K through 12 education system would look like, and they don't really see that changing. So they're not really that's not top of mind when they're voting. You know, voucher system. They're thinking more about public safety. Those are the letters I get. People concerned about public safety and police, uh, and that's the messaging. So they're voting. They think they're voting in their interest based on uh, some of the social war discussions they hear politicians talk about, and, and who's going to support my law enforcement, who's not. When we have a um, you know higher murder rate and things like that, they want to vote for. They aren't necessarily looking at the individual candidate, but they're looking at what does this party stand for, what do they project themselves to be standing for, and I think that's probably a result here. Jamie? I think, um, I, think I would just add that, you know, whenever we talk about rural communities, it's important to just remember that while I'm sure, you know, there are obviously people there who are, you know, knowingly or unknowingly voting against their own interests, um, there are people who genuinely cannot be able, like, cannot have, afford to leave, to go to an area that better represents them. Um, you know, we, we have people over in Rawls, which is just, you know, 40, 40 minutes away from Lubbock, and they can't afford to drive out here to get health care. And so, you know, whenever you think about things like that, it has to really, you have to keep that in perspective and remember that whenever we're talking about, oh, these people in these communities do this to themselves. You know, some of them genuinely can't get out even if they wanted to. So we've covered a lot of ground, um, but before we take audience questions, and we will right after this, really quickly, each of you, I'd love to hear from you one story you or your organization are working on uh, about a problem we haven't discussed and what that, uh, let's leave our, uh, tease our audience with what's to come. Uh, let's go ahead and start with Sarah because she's, she's got a smile on her face. I'm she's, always she, ready to go. She, she knows, uh, <laughs> she's, she's ready. So at Texas Tech Public Media, we have a multimedia series called Beyond the Report. Last year we looked at Lubbock's comprehensive plan. This upcoming year we're going to be looking at what is called the Meadows Report, which came out in 2020 and looked at the status of mental health care in Lubbock and the surrounding region. And so we're going to be going deep on that. Luckily, there are some very positive things happening on that front. Um, so I think it'll be a very um, enlightening, but also positive and uplifting um, series. So I'm excited to dig into that. I know that's also going to be a focus in the Texas legislature. So I think it's coming at a good time. Pooja. I can jump, go next. Um, so at the Texas Tribune, I'm working with a few other reporters on a series about women's health access. Um, and though we've talked about health access here, this is like a very particular issue and we're really digging into the full spectrum from access to sex education in K through 12 to um, access to contraception to the closure of labor and delivery units in some certain hospitals to the shortage of childcare. So um, really exploring this from all angles and I think it'll be a cool series. And that's gonna be rooted in East Texas, correct? That's right. Jamie? Um, so on my end for the Texas Tribune, um, I have plans to start really focusing in on, um, you know, not just necessarily um, our, uh, our, our healthcare access and just our access to other resources in general, but the decline that we've seen in rural populations um, around the state and exactly why that's happening. And of course, the, uh, the ripple effects that come from that. And just a lot of the reporting and discussions we have, um, it's hard to narrow it down, but uh, I'm really interested in water and, and uh, secure water policy um, and also uh, water cleanliness. That's a big issue as our, as our city continues to have discussions about annexation and communities that perhaps don't plan as well for their uh, water future. And uh, just uh, whereas a city like Lubbock has uh, I guess uh, onboarded significant debt in its investments to do that, and so we we are facing additional, uh, I guess, battles as that comes forward, just like other communities. But it's a particular interest here as a, a, a quickly growing city facing that situation. Fascinating topics. I can't wait to read all of them. Uh, we're going to go ahead and take audience questions now, if there are any. You can head over to the microphone. We got one gentleman going. Well, while uh, uh, we get to the audience questions, I'll just share, you know, one of my favorite Colorado quips is, uh, 
whiskeys for drinking and waters for fighting. And uh, <laughs> I, I have no doubt that there's going to be plenty to dig into uh, with water, no pun intended when it comes to irrigation. Um, let's go over here to this gentleman. Go ahead and introduce yourself and your question, please. Hi, my name is Edward George. I'm a resident of Lubbock and, uh, and a member of Citizens Climate Lobby. Uh, regarding the drought this year, uh, can any of you say anything about uh, connections have, that have been made between the drought and either the gigantic drought of which we are apparently on the edge of when you look at a map of the entire Southwest or uh, the matter of whether uh, climate change and climate change predictions are factoring into how officials or journalists or anybody else are uh, handling the, the, the drought? I can take that one. Um, you know, what we've seen from the drought this year has been, it, it's been compared to the 2011 drought for a reason. And I think that we are going to see a lot of lasting impacts from that. Um, but in terms of the, of the response, um, I do think that we have the science to show it. You know, we know that climate science is showing us that droughts are getting worse. They, they are getting worse and they are getting longer. They're occurring more often. And we see that out here in Texas just about every year, really. Um, the only issue is that we have to make people pay attention to that science. And um, that is something that, you know, personally reporting on climate change here in Texas, that's a hurdle. Um, and it is something that I am, I'm like you, I'm hoping that we see some real progress towards that in the next legislative session. And at the very least, you know, hopefully something towards conservation efforts, something towards getting state and local groundwater planning agencies all on the same page with the science that we know is accurate. Um, it's, just, it's just a matter of actually addressing it head on. Uh, just a, a, a final note between uh, Ms. Lozano's reporting and Ms. Self-Walbrick's reporting. Uh, I, I think I speak for a lot of people I know who really appreciate the work that you're doing and we're looking forward to see how you can go more deeply into this particular issue of the drought. Thank you so much. I appreciate That's kind. that. Thank you. Let's go over here. We did not pay him to say that, by the way. Uh, <laughs> let's go over here. Hi, my name is Ryan Crow. I am from Floyd Ada. And uh, I had a question really for, for Jamie and really uh, everyone with the Texas Tribune. Uh, Jamie, you were talking about the healthcare access and rural decline. Um, obviously, we in West Texas are experiencing that, especially in our smaller communities, firsthand. But uh, Nick and Pooja, are you guys seeing that to the same severity in other parts of the state, or is it really almost a, a hyper-focused issue here more than anywhere else? I mean, I know that it's, it, our reporting definitely shows that it's statewide, but I mean, you know, you know Pooja, why don't you talk about, you know, going, getting back to that East Texas mobile health clinic that you reported on. I mean, they are trying to close that gap. But how many counties is yeah, it that don't have hospitals? I think that, I mean, there's a number of counties in Texas that have no hospital and that have no EMS service. Or if they have a hospital, they won't do inpatient or they won't have, you know, OBGYNs. Uh, so, you know, for like this women's health story, we've talked to pregnant mothers who have to drive hours away to get their weekly medical checkups, or if they have more complicated pregnancies. You know, I talked to a woman who's in Nacogdoches who then has to get sent to Longview. That's a couple hours away. Um, if someone's in a car wreck in Trinity County, they're having to be airlifted to Conroe because that's the closest trauma one center. So I think it's really statewide in anywhere that, because what's happening is it's not, it's not like financially, uh, I guess, for a business, for a hospital to open in one of these rural places where the majority of the community is on Medicaid, those reimbursement rates are so low that they don't see an incentive to open up over there. So, and then in terms of like, you know, specialty services like trauma or like labor and delivery, if you don't have enough of a pool of people coming in for those services, again, it doesn't make financial sense. So 
the mobile clinic is one solution, but I think, you know, there's room for more innovation on that. And we're not even talking about mental health, which is a whole other issue. I mean, show me a county judge in a rural uh, uh, community and, and they'll tell you their, their, their jail is home to the most uh, mental health uh, care patients in the county. I mean, just statewide, there are not enough mental health uh, uh, resources in urban or rural. Uh, do we have another question over here? Yes, sir. Hello, yes, I'm Kim Alexander and I'm with Collegiate Education. We're a nonprofit that works with small and rural schools around Texas and around the nation to increase post-secondary credential attainment for all students. Today, we're, we're focusing on a lot of the disadvantages of being in rural West Texas and rural Texas. Uh, we're seeing a lot of advantages in terms of some of the amazing things that some of these little rural schools are doing to engage their community, uh, the workforce, identify high-wage, high-demand jobs, uh, to, to revitalize rural. Are you seeing anything uh, similar from your perspective? Yeah, so first of all, I, I really want to appreciate uh, the note that we've kind of been dogging up here. And, and that's not the case. I mean, I will tell you, you do not have bigger cheerleaders for, for Lubbock in particular than these Lubbock-based reporters. Uh, I, they, they love this city, I, I can tell you that. And, you know, one of the reasons why the Texas Tribune is here is because we do care about rural Texas. Um, so having said that, I would love to, to hear from the panel about what have you, if you've been doing any reporting inside some of the smaller school districts, uh, what are you hearing and seeing? Well, um, you know, I haven't done reporting on it directly, but I, I know because I'm from there. Um, but over in Leveland, I know that they are making a lot of progress, um, not just in the school districts. Those school districts, they are trying to focus more on, um, on STEM projects, just like we have a lot of success here in Lubbock with that. Um, but, you know, even at South Plains College, they have added more to their curriculum. They even, you know, just recently in the last couple of years started a culinary program. And so, you know, there's, there are those people, you know, and I, I, I might be biased towards Leveland, obviously, um, but there are those people out there who are, like you were saying, they are working to really bring creative ideas to these rural communities that they deserve it too you know just you can come out here in Lubbock and find so much that creativity that innovation and I promise you you can go outside of Lubbock and find it too yeah I, I not to, to to give away the farm but tomorrow morning I'm gonna have a, a, a panel of, of educators up here and I know HT Sanchez one of the superintendents I'm gonna be talking to is very proud of the, the stuff his, his school district is doing uh, and getting kids ready to uh, go into you know, the 21st century economy. And I'll let him tell you more about that, so, so stay tuned. Ma'am. I'm Melanie Barnes, and it's more comments necessarily than a lot of questions, but I sit on the regional, regional water planning group, and so, it's something that I don't seem to see publicized out there until recently with uh, the local NPR station. But, you know, how many of you know that the dairies, some of them recycle their water four times before it leaves their property um, and know that farmers are buying up land and then rehabbing the playa lakes and changing half to crops and half to range animals and things like that, and they can actually make a go of it as a family farm. There are a lot of things like that happening. And so my question for the group would be, how many of you know you have a regional water planning group? Two, one, two, have ever been to a meeting? Three, have ever read your regional water plan? Four, have read the state water plan and even talked to someone who sits on the water planning group? Because we don't see a lot of public show up at those meetings. They're public meetings. We advertise them all the time. And one of the things that has started up is the regions have actually formed an interregional water planning group, but the legislature said, yeah, you do it, you do the work, this is the report you want, this is the questions you have to answer, but we are giving no money for travel so you can meet each other. We are giving no staff person for you to have full time so you get the information you need, but we need this report in 18 months. And when they did the first one, we had six months 
to get it together. <laughs> so, so there are things like that where a lot of people are doing a lot of things in water and yet it's not publicized to the public. It's not publicized to the Lubbock community so they know that their effort conserving on their tiny little yard is worth it. And if they realize that the farmers are doing the same thing on their bigger plots and really making a difference, I think it helps the two communities, rural and city to urban, to come yeah. together. Thank and you. That's, and that's where we have a disconnect with Austin and yeah. sometimes even our own representatives. But, and so I think this is fantastic what you're doing. And if you have answers to those questions. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I will say just to start off, uh, one of our colleagues um, just did a very deep dive into uh, some of the state's water issues. And I am sure she read all of those water plans you just mentioned. I think it, the article was 5,000 words. It's definitely at texastribune.com. Uh, water up here, who, who knows what about water besides it's tasty? I could take this. Um, so on the radio show and podcast that I host, Listen in Lubbock, I recently, within the past few months, I interviewed one of our, my NPR colleagues who is down on the border, who, where water is, it's a scary situation down there. Um, truly, I mean, especially, um, I'm trying to remember all the specifics, but I mean, it's becoming a crime issue. Like truly, like people are stealing water and things like that. And so I did two, a 20 minute interview with him. I couldn't not follow up with Lubbock's water situation. So the last part of that show, I had um, the city of Lubbock's director of water, Aubrey Spear, who came in to talk about Lubbock's 100-year water plan um, and how we revisit that frequently and things like that. This is a, a subject that I want to dig into deeper just because I think it's something we should all be thinking about and we're going to need to for the next several years. Um, but it, it's comforting that I think Lubbock is in a good position. Can't say that about some of the nearby communities um, or elsewhere in the state, but yes, it's something that we should all be reporting on more. I'll agree with you on that, Melanie. Yeah, and I, I agree as well. Uh, a lot of the coverage we've had has been very, you know, Lubbock focused and uh, kind of dealt in reporting on acquisition of water rights and, uh, you know, our city's future uh, dealing with the uh, Canadian River Municipal Water Association and um, High, Plains Under, High Plains Underground Water District and uh, concerns between uh, producers, um, and uh, state regulation, so we've reported on these, but I know there's a lot more work we can do. Um, I know in a panel we're going to have here on the stage tomorrow, or I guess uh, at another facility here in Tech, uh, tech tomorrow, uh, I'm going to have Senator Perry here. He briefly talked with me ahead of this about um, a push that he's making to invest more money to um, improve local infrastructure to help reduce water waste. Um, it seems if you follow our, our local news and local news probably around the state, you hear about a boiled water notice uh, at least every couple weeks, or it's perhaps every day um, in one community or another, and just the amount of water that's wasted in those situations, uh, it's, it's kind of hard to think about. Uh, so I know that's just some infrastructure that um, he is uh, hoping, hoping to champion uh, to invest in rural communities and communities around the state. I'm 99% sure that bill's already been filed, actually. So if anyone wants to go look into it. <laughs> Last question over here. Okay, thank you for being here, number one. We really appreciate it. I actually drove um, three hours from the very, very north part of the Panhandle, so, um, and I'm excited to hear about everything tomorrow. But um, I'm Suzanne Bell Snyder. I actually run a small community newspaper up in Hansford County. Um, it's a fairly new uh, venture for me. Um, I actually worked in Austin for almost 20 years and moved back to my hometown, which is uh, Spearman. So I bring a pretty interesting perspective um, to this discussion because I've sort of lived and worked in the policy realm of how we you know, make decisions that affect both rural and urban Texas, and now I'm living the day-to-day. Um, and so I really encourage y'all, as you do your reporting, to get beyond the headlines because there's been a lot of things said today that I don't think really um, tell the story of what's happening in rural Texas. A community like mine, for example, you know, we're a community about resilience, so we actually thrive in times like these. You know, my grandparents lived through the Great Depression. Um, we still have the family farm. We 
planted, you know, corn crop in, or a milo crop in an empty lots in town to make things work. So, and I think um, a lot of people in this room probably are involved directly in some of the really incredible stories that are happening out in rural Texas of how we're solving, you know, our own problems. Um, and, as, and go to the political perspective that y'all talked about quite a bit, you know, rural people aren't voting against their interest, frankly. They're voting on a philosophy of economic opportunity. And that's where I think the Democrat Party's missing the boat. Um, we don't want government solutions. We've never needed them. We've never used them. We're looking for economic opportunity for our kids. You know, I just sent a kid off to University of Texas uh, Business School, and she'll probably never come back home to my hometown because there's no opportunity for us. That's the problem that needs to be solved. That problem solved. Everything else fixes itself. So I hope that as y'all do your, I guess I'm not really asking a question. I'm just making a statement, but give me a mic, right? Some people know me in this room. So um, I hope that y'all will dive deeper beyond the headlines of what people think you need to be talking about on rural issues and really dig down and see what's happening. So, Thank you. Yeah, yeah and, and, and for those who um, aren't familiar with the regional team, which is myself, Pooja, and Jamie, and, and very soon, hopefully, two more reporters uh, in early next year, you know, we are based in your communities, right? We're in Lufkin, we're in Lubbock, we're going to be the Permian Basin, we're going to be in the Valley for that very reason, right? We know we cannot tell the story of Texas from Austin, and that's why we're doing this. And uh, we're just three months into this initiative. We've been to Kirbyville, we've been to Wallsworth, we've been to uh, Beaumont. I mean, we have been already to a, a number of places, and we're going to go to more, and we'll definitely uh, uh, get a tour of your hometown uh, very soon. So, uh, any last words from our panelists? All right. Well, thank you all for being here today. I need to give one more shout out to our sponsors Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center, Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas, Water Grows, Texas 2036. Uh, for more information about Texas and any of the things we talked about today, please visit texastribune.org and uh, yeah, thank you all for being here and we're looking forward to telling the story of Texas.